Welcome to this self-guided audio walk presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin for its 2021 edition, Here and Now. Throughout your walk, please keep an eye out for pedestrians and traffic. Don't forget to keep a safe distance from others. Ensure you do this walk at sociable hours and remember, you can pause the playback at any time. Alternatively, you can enjoy this walk from the comfort of your own home. You can view the route map and read the full transcription of this walk on the event page at www.ilfdublin.com. We hope you enjoy this experience. Hello, my name is Orla Fitzpatrick and I'm a photographic historian and librarian from Stony Batter, Dublin. You're welcome to Lost Ireland, the Northside edition, an audio tour of some of the locations featured in my book, Lost Ireland. We'll visit the site of the city's favourite bargain store, a theatre, a cafe and some long-gone public lavatories. We'll also recall the temporary structures put in place for the country's largest ever public gathering, the 1932 Eucharistic Congress, which had an attendance of over one million pilgrims. One of these buildings was recently demolished to make way for a holiday apartments, whilst another was razed to the ground in the turmoil of 1916. All show the multi-layered and vibrant social and commercial life experienced by previous generations of Dubliners. If you're following this tour along the streets of Dublin, simply pause when you hear the music and you can then move along to the next location. Key looking towards O'Connell Street, and we're at the site of where there were French urinals um, which were brought into the city for the occasion of the 1932 Eucharistic Congress. And there were over a million pilgrims in the city for this five day event. And Dublin City Council realised, or Dublin City Corporation as they then were, realised that people would need to relieve themselves. So they imported these rather fancy French urinals, which were octagonal in shape, and they dotted them around the pilgrim route between the city centre and the Phoenix Park where the main events were occurring. Now there was one problem with these and that was that they were only for the male pilgrims and indeed this has been something that's been quite a factor in Dublin's history. Flann O'Brien has a character in The Hard Life, Mr Colopy, whose lifelong campaign was for public lavatories for women. Uh, There's also a mention of this in Ulysses, um, where Leopold Bloom is walking up O'Connell Street and realises that the urinals and the public lavatories are only for men. Some of these urinals were still in the city up to the 1980s. Uh, Some were sold off. Uh, One is becoming a garden ornament and a house in Sandymount. They were also part of, and this has been alluded to in several recent memoirs, part of a uh, thriving gay scene. And uh, then in the 1970s, as drug use increased, uh, public lavatories were viewed to be the scene of antisocial behaviour. And I think in lockdown and in this COVID-19 world, this is something that we're seeing again. Uh, Do we need public toilets? Yes, we certainly do. And as we're spending increasing times outdoors, this is something that... uh, the public want and is there an obligation or a contract between the city council and the citizens of Dublin to provide them with somewhere to go to the toilet. 
So we're on O'Connell Bridge, and this is one of the focal points for the 1932 Eucharistic Congress, which had over a million pilgrims. And there are some stunning photographs which feature in Lost Ireland showing the um, crowd on O'Connell Street and all down uh, Westmoreland Street. Now, the Eucharistic Congress, which happened in 1932, was an attempt by the state also to showcase that it was a modern progressive nation. And even though it was a religious event, it was also something that had an aspect of modernity in it. Uh, the city was meant to be treated by the pilgrims like an open air religious space. And dotted around the city was a very intricate and state-of-the-art loudspeaker system, which meant that you could hear the mass which was being held in, in the Phoenix Park. You could hear it all around the city. And the reverence and behavior of the pilgrims was meant to reflect this. Its modernity was also reflected in the fact that a lot of the buildings were temporary and designed just for this event. And whilst they hearkened back, some of them to Baroque architecture, others looked to early Christian Irish architecture but in the modernity comes from their modernity comes from the fact that they were um, temporary and designed with spectacle in mind another thing that was factored into the design of the buildings and of the whole event was how it would look photographically and the army and the state decided to employ the Irish Air Corps to take aerial photographs of all the main events so this gives a total idea of what the scale of these events were and the photographs show the density of the crowd and we can see all along the quays we can see people hanging off the rooftops people standing on the walls of the quays and on the bridges people are genuflecting and kneeling so the photographs the photographs of the event that are in Lost Ireland show the benediction which is a display of the Eucharist and this is one of the big events one of the final events of the week-long congress and we can see the pilgrims filling O'Connell Street and then the main focal point was this altar which looks like a large kiosk um, and it's white and within that is the Pope's representative um, Cardinal Lazuri and he is in this kiosk which subsequently was dismantled and moved out to Kappa Orthopaedic Hospital but the Eucharistic Congress is something that the whole city was geared towards. Bunting was on every street, even those that weren't part of the procession. So the docks uh, or the of Dublin Harbour had seven large liners which were used as, as hotels for the pilgrims. And it was also a celebration of Ireland's role within the Catholic Church and the fact that so many Irish priests and nuns had gone out to the missions and become success, successful and reach the higher echelons of the church. So they revisited and it was something that unified the state and was viewed as a showcase that Ireland, newly independent Ireland, could put on an event of this scale. site of Liberty Hall and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about the old Liberty Hall which was demolished in 1959 and it's located on Beresford Place and Eden Quay uh, on the north side looking out over the Liffey and the old Liberty Hall uh, was a centre of quite a lot of political and um, formative publishing events in Ireland's history. So 
It was originally called uh, the Northumberland Hotel and it was bought by the ITGWU, the Irish General Workers Trade Union, in 1912. And this Northumberland Hotel had a long history. It was built in 1820. And what interests me about that is it's part of a sort of a leisure complex which included um, Turkish baths, shops, a cafe and uh, more up-class restaurants. So I think I like the idea of that uh, one space occupying um, a lot of different businesses within it, accommodating a lot of businesses within it, and also this Turkish baths, which feature, feature several times throughout the book. It was quite a phenomenon in Dublin and in Cork, and the Turkish bath as a leisure activity it was also reportedly really good for as a hangover cure, but they were a site within the city that allowed for very fanciful and fun interiors and exteriors. And Liberty Hall, where we're standing now, was the site of one of these Turkish baths. So, of course, Liberty Hall was associated with the 1913 lockout and it's a site on which was run a soup kitchen. It was also where strike wages were paid out. Uh, it was a publishing centre in the basement of the original Liberty Hall. There was a printing press upon which James Connolly printed his weekly newspaper, The Workers' Republic, between 1915 and 1916. And the Irish Proclamation, probably the most important document in our history, was published in here in the basement of this building. Now, the building was down in 1916 however not to the same extent perhaps as the Dublin Bread Company which we will also visit on the tour or uh, Cleary's which was totally demolished but it did um, withstand uh, the bombardment that it got and it wasn't fully out of function after 1916 so the building was around till 1959 when a decision was made to demolish it and to build this new Tower, which is one of the first high-rise buildings in Dublin. And another thing that it has a parallel with the Dublin Bread Company around the corner is the fact that it had a viewing tower. And like the Dublin Bread Company, it had this viewing tower which allowed people to get an aerial view of the city. And I think this is something that um, is quite interesting about a lot of the buildings that we see in uh, the city centre, this way of interacting with the city and the idea that you, a citizen or anybody can go in and look out and get this different perspective upon their building. Uh, much like the Abbey Theatre around the corner as well, there was talk in the last decade of knocking this building and uh, replacing it with perhaps something taller or more spectacular but it appears that that is not now going to happen but again it's another another example of a quicker turnaround things bought, built in the 60s becoming obsolete by the uh, beginning of the 21st century. Abbey Theatre and um, in the book Lost Ireland uh, we have photographs of the original Abbey which uh, was demolished in 1961 and this is of course so integral to Irish history and to the Irish Celtic revival. It opened in 1904 as a National Theatre of Ireland. Uh, prior to that, it had been the Mechanics Theatre and it was bought by the Englishwoman Annie Horniman and the director of the National Theatre, William Fay. It included beautiful windows by the Ar of Arts and Crafts windows 
by uh, the stained glass artist Sarah Purser. Um, it was redesigned by Joseph Holloway. Uh, we know, of course, of the civil disturbances that took there, took place there in 1907 in association with John Millington Singh's The Playboy of the Western World and also the 1920s riots associated with Sean O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars in the 1920s. It was an intimate space. It was um, a theatre that reflected the arts and crafts movement. It was a theatre that had a very important part in Irish history. However, in 1951, there was a fire which destroyed much of the interior. And for the next 15 years, uh, the National Theatre of Ireland was run out of Queen's Theatre. And in the meantime, a commission was set up on a competition to redesign or to design a new Abbey Theatre. So the original Abbey Theatre was demolished in 1961. And the competition was won by uh, Ronald Tunnell and Michael Scott. Uh, And Michael Scott was indeed a former Abbey actor. Um, So so the building that was built in 1961 is a cube, it was windowless, it did have a portico added which we're standing underneath at the moment. Uh, and for me what's interesting about this building is the fact that in January 2020 a decision was made that this building from 1961 would indeed be pulled down and a new incarnation um, would be built. And I think that tells us quite a lot when we're looking at these photographs of old buildings in the Buchlost, Ireland. It can also point to where the city is going as well. And what I have noticed is that some buildings, such as the Mechanics Theatre, which pre, which was a precursor to the Abbey Theatre, was in existence for a hundred years. Yet this current incarnation of the Abbey will be, have been around for less than half that amount. So our turnaround of buildings does appear to be accelerating, and the need for a redesign. So you've got a question whether this has an impact from an, uh, an ecological point of view and do we need to demolish things? So I think whilst we look at these photographs of old Ireland and old Dublin, we may view them as being mawkish nostalgia, but they do also offer us a template or a signifier or a signal towards what our city can become or what we use it for. Um, and I think this Abbey Theatre redesign is something that is part of a phenomenon where we are seeing an accelerated turnaround in buildings and buildings that have been designed by architects be deemed quite quickly to be not fit for purpose. to Cleary's department store which opened actually in the mid-19th century in 1853 and it was in its first incarnation it was called the New Palatial Market run by McSweeney and Delaney Company um, which is quite an exotic name. It was during this period staff lived in it was then bought by uh, Michael J. Cleary hence the name and that was in 1896 and this was a boom period for the department store. It had uh, several de- several levels and balconies. It was very well designed. And Michael Cleary during this period had a large number of staff, many of whom lived in. And it was a long apprentice to work in these department stores, learning the specialities of haberdashery or the various different uh, disciplines. Uh, in 1896, 1890- um, 
He also had a dual business with the Imperial Hotel, which worked on the upper floors of this department store. Um, in 1916, however, the, the original building was completely destroyed and the demanders of the department store reacted really quickly. And within a couple of weeks, they had a warehouse open around the corner on Abbey Street and they worked out of there for nearly the next decade whilst they redesigned uh, the department store. And this redesign was very much inspired by Selfridges, the big department store in London. And that was the Cleary's that we know uh, knew in the 1980s. And it was designed by Ashling and Coleman and the architect who worked in it was Robert Atkinson. And he had been trained by the well-known Chicago architect, uh, Daniel Burnham. So this new Cleary's had six big copper surrounded windows, which were meant to encourage window shopping. And they had elaborate displays within the building, which was very modern in construction, albeit in a neoclassical facade. Um, it was very uh, light and airy. It had a grand marble central staircase and um, a sunlit central atrium. Uh, at this stage, it had 42 separate departments and employed nearly a thousand people. It had went through a bit of a lull post-war and at that stage it was bought over by Michael Guineys who still have a presence in the city today. Um, Cleary's didn't fare too well post the downturn and it went into receivership in 2015. So there's been a lot of controversy about the way in which uh, the employees, many of whom worked there for decades, uh, were treated. And it's now got a new incarnation. It has been rebranded as Cleary's Quarter. Um, however, the facade, whilst the facade remains, it is quite telling and quite typical of the phenomenon of facadism, whereby the exterior looks, uh, looks the same, but the interior no longer remains. And uh, it has lost its central staircase and many of the features which were very typical of the 20th century department store. site of what was the Dublin Bread Company's headquarters on Lower O'Connell Street and this was a six-story gigantic building, landmark building, uh, which was opened in 1901 and it was actually only on this street for 15 years. It was a very lavish building. Uh, it had luncheon rooms, smoking rooms, it had uh, function rooms that you could rent, it had a viewing platform in the shape of a pagoda which was underneath a copper spire. Uh, this was a great centre for people to drop into. Uh, it was well known for its chess clubs. The Sackville Chess Club was opened here in 1902 and it was designed by the grandfather of Samuel Beckett and George Beckett who designed it. Uh, this was his first big commission. Uh, he designed a lot of Carnegie libraries and Methodist churches and technical colleges. He was only 24 when he designed this building. Uh, but the building wasn't here for very long. It was destroyed in the 1916 Rising and it had been occupied prior to that from the Wednesday of Easter week. And obviously with its high, uh, high floors, it was a very good place for surveillance and looking out. So the rebels occupied it and they were looking over at snipers on Trinity College uh, 
but it was evacuated then on the Wednesday and went on fire soon after that. And they reckon that the fire started in Hoyt's pharmacy, which stored a lot of turpentine. Um, the building was quite complex and modern in construction, so it did withstand quite a lot of the fire. Uh, it had an uh, iron core and clad it in uh, Portland stone but unfortunately it was demolished. And the interesting thing as well about it is that we uh, have a full account of how it was built because the people who owned it and the managing director was called uh, Mr. Johnston, who later on went on to form Johnston Mooney O'Brien, a well-known bread company. He uh, put in a claim to the state for compensation. And because it was relatively recently built, he had a full list of how it was built and what materials went into it um, but it was when it was thriving it was a very lively spot it was uh, somewhere where nationalists gathered it had debating rooms it's referred to again Ulysses pretty much everything everything that's ever happened crops up in Ulysses we have one of the characters referring it to it the short name for it was the DBC the Dublin Bread Company but uh, Mulligan refers to it in Ulysses as damn bad cake and then we also have um, quite a few references to it and these are more sort of uh, oral history references where it's believed that the waitresses who had DBC on their logo during World War One referred to the logo when asked by British sol soldiers as um, damnation before conscription. of one of Hector Gray's bargain shops on Liffey Street and this is actually the last entry in my book Lost Ireland as it was demolished in 2019 and Hector Gray was synonymous with bargains and bright and colourful fancy goods for many generations of Dubliners uh, but Hector Gray wasn't his real name his real name was actually Alex Scott and he was born in Scotland in 1904 and moved to Ireland in the 1920s and he was a tipster in the uh, race the, around race goings and race meetings so the horse racing industry was what attracted him to Ireland and he changed his name from Alex Scott to Hector Gray because he came from a very strict religious background and he didn't want his family finding out that he was involved with gambling and prior to moving to Ireland he had been in the merchant uh, navy and had visited Asia and he had been to Japan and China and he brought back little tin toys and this is how his interest started in importing fancy goods and every Sunday he used to have a pitch um, beside the Hapenny Bridge uh, near where the Grand Social is now and in and there he had a little stall and this is before he had the shops and he used to have a, a sort of loud fun bartering type of uh, pitch where he would um, hassle and talk to people and a crowd would gather and then he would have a sort of a, an auction for these items and he's kind of continued that with his shops which always had a loudspeaker which attracted in people shouting out that there was uh, a reduction on pencil cases and it was a very seasonal shop as well what you had was a big back to school thing and many Dubliners bought their pencil cases or their first school bag there and Christmas was his boom time uh, so he would have tinsel and all sorts of cheap 
toys, dolls. It's reputed that in 1977, he made over a million pounds on toys alone. So he lived a long life. He died in his 80s, in the 1980s. And his funeral cortege stopped off at the Hapenny Bridge where his pitch originally had been. Now, the site currently where we're standing at the moment is going to become a motel one. And this is where his last shop was. Uh, it's going to become uh, the location of a bargain or a reduced price student hotel accommodation. That block is quite interesting that he was, uh, that his shop was situated on. It included a 300 year old building and several other businesses were based there. Freckles, which uh, was a communion shop. Then there was also a wig shop as well. It's interesting to see that this has been replaced now by this motel and this budget accommodation. And whilst I have fond memories of uh, Hector Gray's and of uh, the other shops, Target was another shop that was there. I don't know whether as a citizen in Dublin I will be in and out of this budget hotel so I think it's quite telling when we look at these pictures of the past and the picture in Lost Ireland is one from the Irish Folklore Commission but what it does show is crowds gathered around Hector Gray's shop window shopping which was a big feature of social lives in the evenings in Dublin in the 1950s and 60s so we may actually have something here now which is attracting visitors in but you wonder what they will go to see as in and what parts of real Dublin life they will see if all the smaller shops are gone and are replaced by high street brands. Uh, but Hector Gray definitely people have fond memories of it and it has become and his name has become shorthand for something that is a little bit cheap and glitzy. for joining me on this stroll around some of the lost buildings of Dublin's north inner city. A couple of them, such as the old Abbey Theatre or Liberty Hall, may have been known to you already, whilst others, such as the Dublin Bread Company, have all but faded from popular memory. I hope that contemplation of what we have lost through redevelopment, revolution and neglect can be a starting point for an exploration of what the city can be in the future. Thank you for listening. Visit www.ilfdublin.com for more events and podcasts. This program was presented to you by the International Literature Festival Dublin, a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. Music